It's a joy to be with you today on this, uh, my first visit as the new bishop of the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic. I hope this is the first of many such visits over the years uh, to come. Uh, my name is Chris, uh, married to Catherine. She's not able to be with us this morning. Uh, she's been with us all weekend, but um, she woke up not feeling too well today, and she figured uh, if she was going to be meeting people, she might not want to give you a gift you didn't want. Uh, so just a precautionary thing. We have three children uh, who are all in their mid to late 20s, and we're quite fond of them. Uh, they're really great people. Uh, we love them very much. As Amy uh, mentioned, uh, today is our Happy New Year in the uh, church calendar. This is the first Sunday of Advent. This is the first Sunday of our new church year. We begin uh, following last Sunday, Christ the King Sunday, we begin with a season uh, called Advent, which comes from the Latin and means to come. And we, in this season, are very intentional about focusing on the three movements uh, of God's coming into the world. And so the scriptures and those that incarnation is going to be focusing on of the Old Testament, and particularly Isaiah over these next few weeks, the Old Testament scriptures focus on the coming of Christ, the coming of Messiah into the world. There's a past tenseness to that coming. He came into the world. And as we heard in that lesson that Katie just read for us, there's also a future tense coming when Christ comes again in glory not humbly as an infant, but in power and majesty as Lord and judge of all. And then there's a third kind of coming that we don't want to miss as we look back and we look forward, and it's that Christ comes, that the Holy Spirit comes to those who are waiting upon the Lord. There's a present tenseness to his coming. And so our theme today is that waiting on the Lord. So let me just start with a question. How do you generally feel about waiting? It's hard. Do you enjoy a nice long wait as you listen to Muzak on the phone and then you're cut off at some point along the way? I'll be honest, I'm not great at waiting. I think I'm better at it than I once was, but I also every now and then get a mirror put up before me and I recognize I'm not quite as far along as maybe I had convinced myself. Uh, the other day I was in traffic and I was behind a guy who was either texting or dead. <laughs> and I gave him a nice, see I'm from South Carolina, so I gave him a nice gentle toot toot, a kind and courteous southern, uh, hey wake up on my horn. And after a while I gave him a, a Washington DC, I'm gonna raise you from the dead. <laughs> and um, he did, arise and he did pull out as the light turned red and I found myself waiting there for a whole nother light cycle and I wish I could say I was praying for his soul. Uh, I wasn't. I was probably needed to be praying for my own soul. Uh, waiting is not easy. It is complicated and often frustrating and I suspect we all know what it's like. In the book, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. John Ortberg offers a kind of pop quiz on waiting that I have adapted a bit to share with you. I'm going to walk you through a few scenarios and then ask you how you might respond. Here's the first one. You're in a grocery store and you have company coming over for dinner 
and you were late getting off work, and now you've dashed into the store for a couple of last-minute things you need that you weren't able to get on the weekend because you were so busy doing the things that your children were doing. You just need them for tonight's meal. You discover that checkout lines are packed, and in fact, you're pretty sure you've never seen more people in this grocery store even at Thanksgiving time. And there have also been never any fewer cash register attendants working. And the checkout, the self-checkout area, has only two machines that are functioning. And it is clear that everybody who's trying to use them has never used one of them before. Think for a moment how you would respond. I'll walk you through a few possible scenarios. You're relieved because you know that your guests will be happy sitting on the porch in the cold for 30 minutes until you arrived. B, you're enthused because it gives you a chance to catch up on reading the ingredients list on the items that you have selected. Or C, you attempt to push your shopping cart over the store manager who seems to be casually chatting with a friend nearby. How do you respond when you need to wait? Second scenario, despite your best intentions, you left the house in the morning a few minutes later than usual, and it was because other people made you late. You're delayed in traffic. You get to the office, and you've got to print some important documents for the meeting for which you are now late. And when you click print on the computer, you get that spinning color wheel or hourglass of doom, and the printer seems to have lost the will to live. How do you respond? A, you're grateful that all the people sitting in your office waiting for you are getting the chance to catch up with each other. B, you're glad that it's this moment that you get the opportunity to learn what a print driver is and how to download it from the internet. <laughs> or C, you decide to grab a hammer and help the printer along. These are easy kinds of waiting. They're silly, and they're the kinds of things that we learn to put up with, but then there are the more difficult kinds of waiting that we experience in this life. There's the waiting of the person who wants meaningful work, significant work, but cannot find it. There's the waiting of the spouse who's trapped in a difficult marriage that never seems to change. There's the waiting of persons of color for the day when everyone's children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Or the waiting of the single person to see if God has marriage for him or for her. I have a friend, and she was praying for a spouse. She had a list of 27 things that she was requesting God for very detailed things that she wanted. God, bring me a man with these 27 qualities. And after a couple of years, it got down to just two things. I want him to be male, and I want him to have employment. So God, bring me a man with a job, right? There's, there's, a, there's something that waiting does to our heart along the way. There's the waiting of a childless couple who desperately wants to have a child. 
to start their family, but then day after day, week after week, month after month, the prayer goes unanswered. And their intimacy is no longer, well, it's no longer enjoyable. It becomes pressured and intense. There's the waiting of the person who's physically or emotionally ill, who longs for the day when their capacity is back to normal, when they can just do the things they once did. Friends, there's no doubt that the philosopher, the American philosopher, Tom Petty, was right when he's saying the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more yard. You take it on faith, you take it to the heart, but the waiting is the hardest part. Lewis Smedes, who was a professor of theology and ethics at Fuller Seminary, put it like this. He wrote, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. And you see this all through the pages of the scriptures, throughout the Bible. There are people that are just like you and just like me, and they're waiting, waiting for change, waiting for answers, waiting for promises, waiting for justice, waiting for deliverance, waiting for healing, waiting for salvation as they're waiting on God. Now, the Old Testament lesson today from Isaiah 64, it's written at a time in which God's people were waiting, waiting on the Lord, and Isaiah gives voice to a kind of lament. He's crying out to God and confessing their sin and his and seeking God's intervention and salvation. So I'm going to just turn to that text and sort of walk through a few of the verses. Verse 1 of Isaiah 64 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. Now, the historical context in which this was spoken was at a time in which the people were in exile. They, as a nation, had forsaken God. They had been given a mission by the Lord, not only to be his people, but to be a light for the nations. And they had not only turned their back on the mission that God had given them to lead the nations to the worship of God, to have the knowledge of Torah or of God's law and God's ways, but on top of that, they had become like the nations of the world. They had run after other gods, idols, They had turned their backs on God, the one who they owed everything. And as a result, they were now in exile. They had been overrun and defeated by 
the nations. First, the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And then later, the southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is, was overrun by the Babylonians in 568 BC. And when that happened, many people were killed. Others were taken off into captivity. Families were separated. Um, Not only that, but those who were left in Israel, those who were left in Jerusalem were just a fragment, a remnant. They were broken and divided. It was not a good season in the life of the nation. And this went on for years and years and years. Now think about what waiting's like. And they're waiting under the intense pressure of a brutal nation who is over them. And they no longer have the temple because the temple was destroyed. And so the very visible presence of God among them and the place to which the nation centered their life and their worship was no longer there. And so they're waiting on God, waiting on deliverance, waiting for change. And you can hear it in Isaiah's cry, oh, that you would just tear open the heavens and come down. Where are you? That's an honest prayer, isn't it? God, where are you? I wish you would just crash into the creation in a powerful way, in a visible way. Make your presence unmistakably known like you've done in the past. And of course, he's got in mind when God entered in and rescued the people out of Egypt. When God made himself known at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. God, come with the intensity of a consuming fire that licks up the dry wood and get rid of the adversaries who have have vanquished us. God, come in with an intensity. You've broken in sovereignly before. Do it again, Lord, because you're the only God. And you come to those who wait upon you. There are times when God breaks in. In fact, I think another name for the Bible could be God's in-breaking, his entering into the creation that he has made to engage with the people that he has created. History's full of such times. Sometimes he has come in great power to large numbers of people, and at other times he breaks in into the lives of individuals. I think of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel when he's waiting on the Lord, and there is a still and gentle voice that comes. And that's how he knows it's the Lord. Some years ago, I was um, hiking. I do a lot of backpacking. And I was in Georgia. We were living there at the time. I was a priest at a church there. And there was a place called Pine Mountain that I would go and I would kind of go pray as I was preparing my sermons. It was about an hour from where we lived and I could get out into the woods and, and I was out there on a su- uh, Saturday. Uh, it was summertime. I had gone further than I had intended and as I was on my way back to where the car was parked, uh, a summertime thunderstorm came up. And we get the same kind here in the Virginia area, right? They come up fast. It can be a beautiful day one moment, and then suddenly it's like everything changes. The sky is dark. The wind is whipping. And I knew that I was in deep trouble because I was on top of a mountain in a pine forest. 
That is not a good place to be as a thunderstorm is approaching. And I started running, and I was like, I got to get there, and I didn't make it because, I mean, it was like the heavens opened and the rain came down. I was soaked to the bone, and it wasn't this, like, flash, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. It was flash, bang, and I could, I could hear trees that were getting hit, and I threw myself on the ground, and I got into the, the position, right, like, hands over my head, face in the mud, and what came out of my heart was simply, oh God, help. You know those kind of honest, oh God, prayers. And I don't know how long I was there, but that's when the whisper came. The still, small voice of the Lord, not from out there, but, but, but here. And he simply whispered, I'm so much bigger than this. And I don't know how long the storm crashed around me because I didn't hear it anymore. Because suddenly I was in the presence of the one who comes. Felt a little bit like that. Because in the midst of that place, what happened was my heart was exposed to my own unbelief and his willingness to come near, not because I deserved it or had earned it, but simply because he's good and he cares. He is the God who comes to those who wait upon him. See, waiting on the Lord often starts with the desperation of our heart when we know the intense the intensity of our need. Come, Lord, there's a problem, help me. And it's that desperation and it's that need that causes us more often than not to seek the God who saves. And for Isaiah, that's what distinguishes the real God from other gods, is that God is and God saves. He's a savior who acts on behalf of those who put their trust in him. Now, biblically speaking, that's actually what it is to wait on the Lord, right? It's not this passive kind of resignation. I'll just wait it out and do nothing in hopes that it'll all pass away. No, to wait on the Lord is an active kind of trust that's willing to commit itself to God come what may. No matter who else is around, I will stay committed to you, Lord. I'm going to actively trust you with my real life, my day-in and day-out life, my going-to-work and going-to-school kind of life. I'm going to let it all rest upon you. Now, I wonder how many of you, have any of you ever been repelling? Do you know what repelling is? I, I've been on all these, like, pastor retreats, and for some reason, they think pastors should go repelling. I don't know why. I think they want to scare most of us, and I'm not a huge lover of heights, but the way repelling works is, is that you are in this harness, right? And the harness has a rope that's attached to something over there, and you're up on top of like a hill or a wall. They always seem to put me on tops of these really steep mountains, 
And the way you repel is you essentially, you, you hold on for dear life onto the rope. As you back your way towards the edge of the cliff, you get to the edge of the cliff with your toes on the cliff and your heels hanging off, desperately not wanting to look behind you. And they say, okay, now let go of the rope and sit in the harness. And it isn't until you let go of the rope and sit in the harness that you've actively trusted. And that's what faith is like. It's a willingness to let go of the control of the rope and sit down into the Lord who says he'll hold us, he'll capture us, that we can trust him. And then as you do that, you can make your way, just like in repelling, down the wall. You can make your way. And it's a continual trust that it's going to hold as you're on your way down the hill. That's waiting on the Lord. That's what it's like. That's what it is to actively trust him. And you do it for as long as it takes to get down that mountain, as long as it takes until the Lord changes the situation or the Lord alters your perspective or the Lord brings the deliverance that you've been requesting. What happens, I believe, in my experience and the experience of so many others is that you tend to get stronger as you go. You tend to get more confident in your relationship with God as you go because you now have history behind you that he really is trustworthy. He really will take me through. He really will hold on to me all the way. There's a picture in the Hebrew idea of waiting, and it's, it's this. It's if you can imagine two strings or two strands and the one strand of rope let's say is not all that strong by itself but when you begin to interweave another strand it gets stronger there's there's a a strength to it that's what waiting is it's so interweaving your life with God that you get stronger as you go there's not a passivity to it there's an activeness and yet there's also a recognition that you can't do his part He has to do his part. And you make yourself available for him to weave his life into yours. And here's the problem. He is holy, holy, holy. And so as you allow your life to be interwoven with the holy life of God, something happens along the way. You recognize that you are not holy, holy, holy. And there's a kind of exposure that goes on in our lives as we wait for him, as we interweave ourselves with him. And what happens is the part of us that we are by nature apart from him tends to surface. And it's not so that God can smash you. It's so that God can deliver you, change you, and make you new. This is how Isaiah put it. Isaiah said, you meet the person who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways, and then there's a shift right in the middle of the verse, and it's meant to be like hitting the brakes in traffic. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us 
away. He comes to this recognition that when you're waiting on the Lord and, and you actually make yourself available to the Holy God, something happens is that you see yourself as you are. You are not God. And in fact, you begin to recognize, oh, my heart so easily runs astray. Oh, my heart so easily goes its own way. He likens it to a dead leaf in the wind. We've just seen this with the fall of all the leaves. There's still some out there on the ground. Think about as you're walking, as you're driving, and the leaves being blown about by the wind. There's no life in the leaves on their own. They've been disconnected from the tree. And the wind is blowing them along, and eventually they're going to fall to the ground, and they're going to become fodder. He's saying our sin is so attached to us that our lives are more like a leaf disconnected from the tree being blown along by the wind, and it's going to end in nothing. And the Lord, you're angry that this has occurred. And of course, the people of Israel had to come to grips with the fact that they did it to themselves. And isn't that so often what we also do? We separate ourselves from the one who is life. We go our way thinking, if I just have this, it will bring me what I truly want. Notoriety, power, strength, beauty. They're all these things that we choose. And they become idols in our lives and they capture us and they hold us. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 7. He said, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And the things that I want to do, I, I can't seem to do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer, thanks be to God, it is Jesus Christ. Well, Isaiah didn't know his name yet. But he knew that he needed the salvation of the God who created them. And we need that salvation too. You need that salvation. I need that salvation. Because apart from him, our lives are truly like a leaf blown in the wind. We will die. We will pass away. And yet the beauty of what happened as God came into the world, and we'll celebrate it in a few weeks at Christmas, is through the life and through the death and through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, there is now a new kind of life. It's a life that changes us from the inside out and reconnects us with God. And that reconnection is not for a moment, but for a lifetime and for an eternity. But just like the Israelites, we had to recognize our need for it. We have to recognize that we have within us a body of death and that we desperately need his life. Isaiah moves into relationship. He says, now, O Lord, you're our father. We're the clay. You are our potter. We're the work of your hand. So he's recognizing we can't fix it ourselves. We need a savior who will rescue us and reshape and remold our lives to make us like him. Because no matter how much we try, no matter how much we want, we always fall short. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are your people. And he leaves the text with this forwardness. Please see us. Please look at us. We're your people. And unless you save us, unless you do something radically different than religion 
or morality or behavioralism, we are lost. We are lost. There's a story about a young boy who loved cookies, just, just couldn't get enough of them. And there was always a cookie jar in the kitchen. And so he would often go and get a cookie, even when he knew he wasn't supposed to. And he had a pretty harsh father. And no matter how many times his father corrected him, the boy just kept getting caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And so his father put up a sign in big block letters, God is watching you. And the next time the boy got caught with his hand in the cookie jar by his grandmother this time, he said with tears in his eyes, is it really true, grandmother, that God is watching me? And she said, oh, yes, honey, he is. But it's because he cannot take his eyes off of you. And such it is for those of us who have waited on the Lord and fled to him for our salvation that even when we fall away, even when we blow it, even when we make mistakes, his eyes are on you. He can do no other thing but then to watch and to encourage and to delight. Yes, he will correct, but his correction is not destruction. His correction is designed to help you become more like him, woven together, holy to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you meet us in our fears that you're not really as good as the scriptures say you are? Would you meet us in the places, Lord, where we've had um, absent fathers, abusive fathers, and show us that you're not like that, but that you always provide, that you're always there, you never leave us wondering. Lord, you are the one who is the potter and we're merely the clay. And so in this Advent season, we come to you, Lord, and we wait upon you, and we seek to weave our lives together with yours. Would you do a work in us? Would you do that work because of Jesus? It is in his name, and it is for his sake that we pray. Amen.